Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be looking at um, just one verse this morning, verse 25. Title to our message is The Plundering of Satan's House. And as you're turning there, please remember that as we read God's breathed out word, it is meant to train us for righteousness and and equipped for every good work. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just one verse, verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we recognize um, what the psalmist says to be 100% true this morning that Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, those who watch over it do so in vain. God, we cannot sanctify ourselves. If there are those here today who are unsaved, they cannot save themselves. Lord, we cannot feed ourselves spiritual food. Lord, we must have you do it. We don't want to hear just a a naked, bare word today. We want to have an encounter with you, the living God. So please come. Speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. All right, please be seated. I guess just as a, a preface before we begin... Um, I've been super thankful for the theological conversations and discussions that we've been having around this series. Um, Even if we don't all agree on some of the conclusions, um, what a blessing and how precious it is to be talking theology. I've been to churches where um, theology is not talked about, and that's a sign of sickness in the church. So, So praise God that you, um, you love to talk about these things. So, so this morning, my plan is to stir the pot a little bit more in hopes to engender some more conversations. I want to begin this morning by just pointing out that we as evangelicals often have inconsistencies in our, our thinking. Um, on the one hand, uh, we sing songs like, This is my father's world. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. We sing that. We we proclaim that Jesus died, was buried, was raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God where he is reigning and putting his enemies underneath his feet. And then on the other hand, with, with almost no grasp of the inconsistency in our thought, many of us declare that, well, this world belongs to Satan. And we don't win down here, we lose. And that Satan is the God of this world. Well, which one is it? Is Jesus the king of kings in this age or is Satan? Every single Christian, regardless of our eschatological flavor, believes that King Jesus will win at the close of this age, that he will cast the devil into the lake of fire and sulfur, Revelation 20.10. The question this morning is, will Jesus um, put the devil under his feet in history, in this age? Who will triumph in this age, Satan or Christ? Maybe another way to ask it is, Whose house is being plundered right now? Is Satan plundering Christ's house or is Christ plundering Satan's? Is it possible, I mean, for for a moment to, to think about that perhaps we have interpreted history wrongly? What does Scripture say that Jesus came into the world to do? Many things, but most pointedly in 1 John 3, 8, um, 
the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil. Jesus came to slay the serpent. There was a time before Christ came into the world that Satan had dominion over man. Before Christ came, Satan um, firmly held the, the nations in his grip. But what happened at the first coming of Christ is that everything changed. We read in the preface to John's gospel that the true light, which enlightens everyone, came into the world. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness had not overcome it. So I would would suggest to you that Jesus came into the world to plunder Satan's house, to take back what the first Adam had lost and to reestablish dominion over the earth for the glory of God. So with that in mind, here's our big idea. When Christ entered history, he bound Satan and he began to plunder his house. And that plundering will continue until he is completely under Christ's feet. So let's begin then this morning with our doctrine. How does everything that I have just said connect at all with our passage? Well, remember, Paul began chapter 15 by proving the necessity and the reality of the resurrection of Christ. Verses 1 through 23, resurrection, resurrection. And then in verse 24, he all of a sudden starts talking about Jesus' kingdom, the, the kingdom that he would deliver up to the Father at the end of this age. And so the question is begged, what does resurrection have to do with kingdom? What's the connection between the two? Well, when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he fulfilled the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, 13, that one of David's descendants would, would sit on the throne and he would build a house for God's name. The kingdom of Christ was established at that point. Now, of course, it's true that the Son of God as the second person of the Trinity has always been king. Psalm 145, 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. But acting as the mediator, even as our own shorter catechism says, he fulfilled the office of a king as our redeemer. As the God-man, Jesus became king when he entered into the world. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, prophesies that when Christ came into the world, the God of heaven set up or established his kingdom. And Reformed theologians have called this his messianic kingdom. It, it spans from the first coming to the second coming. When Christ returns, then he will give his kingdom to the Father, verse 24, where he will combine his reign as mediator and his reign as supreme Lord over all. So here, here's the question then. What's Christ doing now? As reigning king, what is he doing now? What is he accomplishing? Well, look at the end of verse 24. It says that he is destroying every rule and authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until... He has put all enemies under his feet. What does that mean to have Christ's enemies be put under his feet? Well, again, I don't think that we should merely speculate. We should ask the question, are there other places in Scripture that uses this same imagery? Yeah. Would you please turn with me to, to Joshua chapter 10? Joshua chapter 10. Now, this was the battle where Joshua and the Israelites had fought against the five Amorite kings who had made war against Gibeon. Gibeon was one of Israel's vassal states. Israel had sworn a covenant to protect them. And, and so when these five Amorite kings came against Gibeon, 
Israel was obligated to defend them. This was the famous battle where, where Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still so that Israel could, could gain vengeance over her enemies. And these five kings were defeated and they were forced to flee to this cave. Israelites found them, they brought them out to Joshua, and, and look what Joshua does to them. Look at verse 24. When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, here it is, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. Now, only one day earlier, these kings had ruled their own people, uh, led their own armies, and, and now they're disarmed, they're humiliated, they're unable to make war anymore. They were subdued, they were brought exceedingly low, their power was stripped from them. And consequently, Israel had peace. So, so this imagery of your enemies being put under your feet is a picture of your enemies being stripped of their power, disarmed, humiliated, and the result is peace and rest. So let's turn back now to 1 Corinthians 15.25. Look again at what Paul says in verse 25. Specifically, he says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So the analogy is this, just like Joshua put his enemies under Israel's feet by stripping them of their power, disarming them, humiliating them, and thus bringing them peace and rest, so Christ is going to do the same. When? Well, this verse says before he returns, because he must reign until that is accomplished. Listen to what John Calvin says here on this passage, he says, the time is not yet come when Christ will deliver up the kingdom to the Father because Christ has not yet subdued all his enemies. Now that must be brought about because the Father has placed him at his right hand with this understanding that he is not to resign the authority that he has received until they have been subdued under his power, end quote. In other words, Jesus will not return until his enemies are conquered, until he puts all his and our enemies under his feet. Now, here's the question. Can we see this in history? Can we see this being played out? Can we actually see Jesus bringing his enemies underneath his feet? Yes, we can. Now, our focus this morning is specifically is to see how Jesus has been putting Satan under his feet since the first coming. So here's our doctrine this morning. When Christ entered history, he bound Satan and he began to plunder his house. And this plundering will continue until he is completely under Christ's feet. One of the things that I, I think we um, underestimate is we underestimate um, what the world was like before Christ came into the world. This is the only world that we have known. Um, most of us have, have only lived here in America and have only experienced uh, peace and prosperity. But what was the world like before Christ came? Well, what happened in the garden when Adam fell into sin? We know that the human race was, was then condemned, but more than that happened. Satan defeated man by enticing him to sin. And when that happened, Satan took dominion away from Adam. And God prophesied that this dominion wouldn't be restored until the seed of the woman came and crushed the head of the serpent. And so what we see occurring throughout the Old Testament is, is Satan exercising this dark and demonic and um, enslaving dominion over man. Almost immediately after the fall, uh, 
actually around 1,600 years, the, the flood took place. Satan's dominion had so spread over the earth that all of the earth was wicked except for just Noah and his family. Genesis 6, 5 through 7. It, it didn't stop. After they, they started rebuilding civilization after that, um, Satan's dominion again was felt at humanity's rebellion at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And then again at Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. In fact, a summary verse of the whole Old Testament is in 2 Kings 17.29, which says that every nation served idols. They served demon gods, which they fashioned into idols. Was there any nation under heaven that, that didn't come under the dominion of Satan in the Old Testament? Yes, there was only one, only one. It was the nation of Israel. When God called Abraham out of Babylon, he was a, a moon worshiper. And when he called him out of Babylon, he called him out of Satan's dominion, out from underneath his reign. In the entire Old Testament, Israel alone had been rescued from Satan's dominion, Deuteronomy 7, 6. And yet even, even Israel, what do we see Israel doing? They're constantly apostatizing. The whole book of Jude, uh, uh, Judges is a, is a picture of of Israel, worshiping God, then falling away, worshiping God, then falling away. That's the whole history of Israel and, until finally God just hands them over to Assyria and Babylon at the end of, at the, end of the Old Testament. So that's, that's a, an overview of the Old Testament. Uh, Satan has dominion on the earth since the fall. So that's the context in which the New Testament begins. This, this baby Christ comes into the world, a world of blackness enslaved to Satan. And then everything changed. And I want to prove this out by just looking at five passages. So let's first of all turn to Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 29. Trying to prove that when Christ came into the world, he overthrew the dominion that Satan had. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? See, even they had an idea that the son of David must be this serpent slayer. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So again, if, if you're questioning this idea of did Satan really have dominion, Jesus is saying he had a kingdom. If I had cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Stop right there for a second. So here's the question. According to Jesus, why does he have the ability to cast out demons? Because, verse 28, the kingdom of God has come in his own person. Satan's kingdom is now, at this point, being overthrown. As one author says here, these exorcisms that were performed by Christ were an outward manifestation of the great confrontation taking place between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Then what Jesus does in verse 29 is he puts this exorcism in the form of a metaphor. Look what he says in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. 
So he, he's saying this is that. This metaphor is what just took place. In other words, Satan is the strong man. The strong man's house is the world. And the strong man's goods that are being plundered are men that were captive to his will. So in one sweeping statement, Jesus says, now that I've come into the world, I have bound Satan, I am plundering his house, and I am setting the captives free. In other words, the binding of Satan is not some future event. It happened at his first coming. Now, there'll be a final putting away of Satan. But we have to deal with that, that this happened in time already. We're going to see what this exactly means here in a bit. Let's turn next to Luke chapter 10. This is where Jesus begins his ministry with the disciples specifically. At the beginning of this chapter, he sends out 72 disciples in order to start proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing every, every sort of disease, preaching the gospel. That's what it says in verse 9. And the disciples were, were naively um, unaware of, of what this meant and what the import of it was. So they go out preaching in the name of Christ, and then they come back shocked. Look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They, they were shocked with joy that, that whenever they preached in Jesus' name, the demons were forced to obey them. They were healing those who were oppressed by the devil, and they simply couldn't believe it. Something new was happening in the world. And so Jesus interprets this event for them. Look at verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, Jesus is speaking very symbolically here. Um, they didn't go out to literally trample on snakes and scorpions, and, and neither did Satan literally come down like a, bolting, uh, a, light of, uh, a bolt of lightning out of heaven. Um, this is fantastical language. It's meant to indicate uh, that Satan had fallen from his position of power and that Genesis 3.15 is now starting to be fulfilled. What did Genesis 3.15 say? That the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. The serpent is falling. He's going in the dust. And, and through his disciples, through the preaching of the, the gospel, Christ is stomping on the serpent's head. J. Marcellus Kick puts it like this. Through the preaching of the gospel, Satan was cast from his high heaven to the dust of the earth. Through the preaching of the gospel, the disciples tread upon the serpent. Satan was to receive a crushing blow, not through a cataclysmic act at the second coming, but by the preaching of the gospel. End quote. So Kick is not saying that Satan won't be defeated at the end. He's saying that, that Christ is not waiting till the end to start defeating him now. So the point of this passage is that when Christ started having the gospel be preached, Satan lost his dominion over the world at the first coming. Let's turn next to, to John chapter 12, verses 31 through 33. Now, the beginning of John chapter 12 is, is Palm Sunday, um, so these words are spoken either on that day or sometime during Passion Week, just a few days maybe before his crucifixion. Look what he says, uh, starting in verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So in this passage, we see three things that happened at the cross. The world was judged, verse 31. Satan was cast out, verse 31. And he began to draw all people to himself, verse 32. So let's just take those one at a time. First, what does it mean in verse 31 that the world will be judged? The world will be judged. Or, well, the word for judgment can either mean condemnation, as in the world will be condemned, or it can mean reformation, as in the world will be reformed. Now, Calvin on this passage believed that it means that the world would be reformed. Listen to what he says, quote, the Hebrew word translated as judgment means a well-ordered state. Now we know that outside of Christ, there is nothing but confusion in the world. And although Christ had already begun to erect the kingdom of God, it was his death that was the true beginning of it the complete restoration of the world. So in short, at the crucifixion, Jesus began to, through his death, he began to restore the world. How? Well, Satan was cast out. That's the second effect of the cross. Satan was cast out at verse 31. So just as Adam was cast out of the garden when he surrendered his dominion to Satan due to sin, so Jesus Christ, the second Adam, through his cross, was casting Satan out of the world by stripping him of his dominion. And then the third effect here, of the cross is is that now that Christ has been lifted up, he's going to start drawing all men to himself. Look at verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So this is a contrast statement between the new age and the old. In the old world before the cross, men were drawn, all men, all nations were drawn to Satan. And now Christ is saying new New world order. (laughs) Now he's going to draw men to himself. All men. B.B. Warfield says here, this is not an each and every person universalism, but it is an eschatological universalism where Jesus turns the world as a system, as a whole, back to God in this last age. Let's turn fourthly to Revelation chapter 20. Now, one thing you have to understand about the book of Revelation is that it is a picture book. Uh, The Apostle John is speaking through imagery, through symbols. Everything is a vision. It's an apocalyptic language. So it's like Nebuchadnezzar's dreams uh, that picture the world through fantastical imagery. So let's look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now let's just stop right there for a second. Who is this angel? Who is this mysterious angel? Well, this Angel actually is Christ himself. Uh, The beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 18, tells us that Christ was dead and now he is alive and now he has the keys to hell and death forevermore. So this is is Jesus coming down. Verse 2, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit He shut it, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Now, um, I kind of jumped the gun in my explanation of verse one, but but the question is, is when does this take place? 
not in the future, uh, but actually in the past, when, when Christ first came into the world. How do we know that? Well, because of all the passages that we've already been reading are testifying to this exact same event. Matthew 12, Jesus bound a strong man. Luke 10, when the gospel was preached, Satan fell like lightning. John chapter 12, when he went to the cross, the rule of this world was cast out. It's the same event taking place. Now, it's obviously clear that even though Satan is, is bound here in this passage, that doesn't mean that he can't do anything in the world. That, that would be preposterous. Obviously, there's tons of satanic activity happening in the world today. But this activity has fundamentally changed. Verse 3 tells us explicitly the manner in which Satan is bound. Look at verse 3. He's bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Before Christ came into the world, every nation was under Satan's dominion and in darkness. It was Israel alone that knew Yahweh, Israel alone that tasted salvation in the Messiah. But now that Christ has come into the world, one author says, now Christ rules the nations, Psalm 2, 8, and 9. And Satan is unable to deceive the nations any longer. A missionary door of utterance has now been opened to the nations for faith, which no man can shut. The great commission shall be accomplished, and all nations shall be made disciples of Christ, since all power in heaven and earth has been granted to him, and he is ever present with this power in his church, end quote. Well, how long is that going to take place for? Well, our text says a thousand years. Well, again, symbolic book. This is not a, a literal thousand years. The whole book is filled with symbology. It, it's symbolic just like Psalm 50, verse 10, where it says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Should we expect that when we get to a, uh, the hill a thousand and one that, that God stops owning those cattle? No, no, it's a, it's a metaphor. It means that he owns all the cattle on every hill. So this number thousand here, it just simply means a vast, undefined period of time, the time that we're living in right now. Well, how long is that going to last? Well, for however long it takes for Christ to put all of his enemies under his feet. He must reign until that is accomplished. It's what our, our, our verse says today. One more passage, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This is the passage where Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him in verse 18 Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This rock that Jesus builds his church upon is the gospel. It's the confession that Jesus is the Messiah sent to save the world. But I would suggest to you that, that well, I'll just speak for myself. I have read this verse wrong my whole life. Um. I assumed that it was um, Satan that was advancing and that the church was the one that was retreating behind the castle walls. But if we read that into the verse, we're actually turning the verse on its head. That's 100% opposite of what it says. The church is not hiding behind the gates. It's not hiding behind the walls. Satan and the, the hordes of hell are hunkered down behind the gates. Uh, the kingdom of, of Christ is the army that's advancing. It's on the offensive. And the dying kingdom of Satan is the pathetic man hiding behind the gates. It's on the defensive. So, so the kingdom of Christ in this age is literally banging down the gates of hell. And Jesus says that those gates will not succeed in holding Christ's kingdom back. They will fail in this age. Christ will reign victorious. 
So what have we seen from all these passages? Well, it's not Christ's kingdom that's growing weaker and weaker. It's growing stronger and stronger. Hell is the one that's retreating. Christ is plundering Satan's house, not the other way around. So that's our doctrine. When Christ entered history, he bound Satan and he began to plunder his house and that plundering will continue until he is completely under Christ's feet. So let's look at our duty now. And our only duty is is simply to consider um, some objections to, to perhaps what we've heard. And the first objection goes like this. Christ's kingdom does not include the physical realm, only the spiritual realm. Yes, we can expect that Christ's kingdom grows in the spiritual realm, but it, we can't expect that it would grow in the physical realm. Think carefully about that objection. Essentially, it's saying that the material world is surrendered to Satan, but the spiritual world is reserved for God. Well, then test yourself. Is that what you think about this world? Do you think that the physical world belongs to Satan and that God alone only possesses the spiritual realm? I mean, we, we've already seen the problem with this at the beginning of chapter 15. This is dualism at best and it's Gnosticism at worst. That's not Christian thinking. Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 that there will be certain doctrines of demons that teach Christians to withdraw from God's physical world, to focus on asceticism and so-called spiritual living. And the underlying assumption of these doctrines is that the physical world belongs to Satan. He calls that, Paul calls that worldly philosophy an empty deceit in Colossians 2.8. Beloved, the the, the kingdom of Christ does not merely advance in the spiritual realm. It also advances in the physical realm. Now, I 100% agree that Christ's kingdom never begins in the physical realm. That there is a sort of secular post-millennialism out there that absolutely must be rejected. It's, it's based on the idea of Darwinian evolution that the human race will necessarily improve and necessarily make progress. And it's the church's job to you know, engage in the social gospel and to, to make the world a better place to live. That, that's a heresy. That, that's false. Christ's kingdom absolutely begins in the spiritual realm. How? Well, it starts by giving us the new birth. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and I'll give you a new spirit and I'll write my law on your heart. It begins by removing all of our guilt and all of our wickedness and all of our corruption. Titus 2.14 says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. It begins by him imputing to us righteousness that will withstand the great day of judgment. Philippians 3.9, we are found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. That's how Christ's kingdom invades the present world. Through the spiritual realm. He absolutely transforms us spiritually first. But is that all that happens? What happens after that? Do our physical lives remain exactly like they were before we were saved? Absolutely not. When Christ transforms his soul, he then begins the work of sanctification, of reforming, of restoring, of renewing, and that transformation necessarily manifests itself in the physical realm. Isn't that your experience? Do you look exactly like you did before you were saved today? Absolutely not. And, and this is the, 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 the record of the New Testament. When Paul preached, or sorry, when Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 
he started with a hostile, Satan-enslaved crowd. And at the end of that sermon, they were transformed into the foundation of the New Testament church. And instantaneously, they manifested in the physical realm as they were devoted to the apostolic teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers, to sharing with those in need. Acts chapter 2. What happened in the rest of the book of Acts? Missionaries were sent all over the world. And whenever the gospel came to these particular cities, like Iconium or Philippi and Thessalonica, it met with resistance. Why did the gospel meet with resistance? Well, precisely because when the effects of the gospel are injected into society, those those social structures and social orders and societal powers are threatened. Um, The gospel, the effects of the gospel, it threatens Caesar worship. It threatens idol worship. It threatens ungodly magistrates. It threatens cronyism and slavery and prostitution and temple worship. Those things are the the foot soldiers of, of Satan's kingdom. Satan actually doesn't care if you accept Jesus into your private little heart. He doesn't care. What he cares is if this gospel actually transforms you, if it's for real, if it really took root. He cares if you believe and act like Jesus Christ is the true king over every sphere of life. Why is that? Well, because Satan's house is plundered when Christians simply act as they ought to as Christians. When the gospel is is applied to marriages and child rearing and economics and vocation and education and politics, the world is turned upside down. I mean, history is on my side on this. Look at the Reformation. Look at the the first great awakening. When the gospel takes root in society, Western civilization is born in the physical realm. So no, it's not true that Christ's kingdom only applies to the spiritual and not the physical. Christ is king over both. Last objection is this. But we see so much evil in the world today. Clearly, this is evidence that Satan is not bound. Clearly, this world belongs to Satan. How do we answer that? Well, first of all, this is called newspaper exegesis, where you interpret the Bible in light of what the world looks like. Uh, We have to interpret the world in light of what the Bible says. And we have already seen that Jesus had declared that Satan is bound and that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's what the Bible says. But secondly, I, I absolutely admit that there is very much evil in the world today. And it is a sad and tragic and heartbreaking thing. It's absolutely awful. But that there is evil in the world today does not mean that Christ's kingdom is not advancing. Imagine with me for a moment that it's 1944. It's near the end of World War II. Would you argue that, I mean, I guess if you knew the future, would you argue that just because the Allied forces hadn't yet conquered Berlin, that it meant that they weren't winning the war? No. Uh, just because there are parts in the world today that have not yet come under the reign of Christ doesn't mean that he's not winning the battle. Uh, pick, pick the most despotic dictator that you can think of today in the world. Think of the little man from North Korea. He commits unbelievable atrocities against the human race and he particularly persecutes the church. Does the existence of North Korea today mean that Christ is not plundering Satan's house? No, not at all. It just means that he hasn't plundered that room yet. We need to judge history rightly. 
We don't judge history on how it's been going for the last 20 years. We need to look at the last 2,000. Has Christ been conquering over the last 2,000 years? Yes, he has. Is there more light in the world today than there was in the first century? Yes, there is. King Jesus is reigning now, and he is right now putting all enemies under his feet. So let's finally look then at our delight. When I uh, wrestled back in high school and college, there were always two matches that you had to wrestle. You had to wrestle the match itself, and you had to wrestle the match before the match. Um, You had to psych yourself up that you could actually get into the ring with this other sweaty dude in spandex. The match before the match was the mental match. Wrestlers would put on their mean face. They would slap their arms and their legs and their face, and they would strut around with their chest puffed up in the air, kind of like a blowfish. You puff yourself up to intimidate your opponent. Because here's the thing, if you could get your opponent to to be afraid, nine times out of ten, you would win. Wrestling is absolutely a mental sport, like most sports. If you could intimidate them, the match was won. Well, but I would suggest to you that, that Satan has largely intimidated evangelicalism for the last century. If we give in to the assumption that this world belongs to Satan, that he is getting stronger and stronger, the church is getting weaker and weaker, we just will continue to retreat. Do you, do you remember the story of the spies who brought back the bad report to, to the Israelites in the wilderness. They, they said, look, there are giants in the land. There's giants in the land. We can't defeat them. And what happened? They, were, they believed the spies more than they believed Joshua and Caleb. And as a result, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, this is one of those if-the-shoe-fits statements. So if this doesn't fit you, don't take it for yourself. But is it possible that that we in the contemporary church have been wandering in the wilderness because we've been intimidated by the lie that Satan is stronger than Christ? Yes, it's true that Satan is a roaring lion. Yes, it's true that he's a fierce dragon that, that persecutes the church and the earth today. He is all of those things. But the scripture tells us that, that when Christ our Savior has come into the world, he came to destroy the works of the devil, that he overcame. He, he has overcome our guilt and shame. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has overcome our sin and our iniquity. If you're here today as a Christian, he was wounded for your transgressions and for your iniquities. He was crushed. If if you are a Christian here today, then he he overcame the power of death for you. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And he overcame all of these things by the shedding of his blood. And when he rose from the dead, he promised to overcome more. He threw down Satan. He disposed him. He crushed him. He shackled him. And Satan knows that his time is short. He's losing ground. Part of the reason why there's such frantic satanic activity in the world today is because he's like a wounded animal cornered. And he's he's thrashing about so that he won't be destroyed. Luther knew this. I don't know what Luther's eschatology was, but he had this idea that Christ was winning. Listen to this song that we're about to sing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What's the one little word? Cross. Through 
the cross of Christ, Christ has cast out the ruler of this world. That's the hope, one of the many hopes that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all of us, regardless of our particular eschatological bent, we know that absolutely in the end that our adversary, the Lord of flies, Beelzebul, will be put down forever. He will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. He'll be tormented forever and ever, and we will have victory, complete and utter victory on that day. And it's that day, Lord, that we look forward to the most. But Lord, I pray that you would help us not to undersell what your son is accomplishing in this age. That to the degree that these things have been preached accurately, that we would believe these promises. That we would see, Lord, that in this age you are plundering the house of Satan. And we rejoice, Lord, for the wonderful work that you have done. We know, Lord Jesus, that there are missionaries all over the world today that are having great success precisely because of these truths that we have preached this morning. That because Satan no longer can deceive the nations, now Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and nation can come into your everlasting kingdom. And for that, we rejoice. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that has not entered into your kingdom, we pray that these words that they heard this morning would convict them of sin. That their own conscience would tell them that they are guilty before you. And that they would see in Jesus hope, a Savior who shed his blood for sinners just like them. And that they would cling to him and trust him and hope in him. And believe that promise that says that if we confess Jesus with our mouth and believe in our heart that, that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. We thank you for all these things in Christ's name.